0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: It's coming up to four o'clock and thanks, Chris, for great voices. Today on the program, Tuesday home time, we'll be hearing about the House of SAID, with Dr Tim Anderson, Senior Lecturer in Political Economy at Sydney University. The ongoing trial appeal of human rights activists delayed once again in Morocco. Ta- talking to Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. Great news from El Salvador, metal mining banned, and a decision on interest on the outstanding debt to El Salvador owed by... Oceania Gold. And Israel is an apartheid state. The UN said so. Activist Kim Bullimore will be explaining that. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and it is his birthday today as well.
2: A week, Jane Lister, when we're very, very restricted, limited this afternoon in what we can say. uh... I'm not sure we could even go on, listener, which which would be shattering for you, I know, but thanks to those anti-free speech, long-haired, commie, greenie, socialist, goody-goodies carrying on about the sensitivities of this community and that community, we have lost our right to free speech. We can't insult, offend or humiliate. So so what are we left with? In working-class families across no such thing as class struggle, true blue Aussie, it's the only topic they're talking about. It's a tragedy. 18C wasn't changed. We have no free speech. Yes, yes, but what about penalty rate cuts, wage stagnation, energy prices we can't afford? That's nothing if we haven't got the right to offend, insult and humiliate. Yes, Corey and George and Eric and the Lord Rupert of Wapping usual suspect hacks are all correct. It's all people care about. But, oh, okay, we'll we'll do our best to, to carry on. Thus, as a cyclone and extreme weather attacked two Blue communities... No, first slight diversion, nothing to do with extreme weather, but caring fossils explained why the public purse must meet the costs of clean-up and community worker transition when they abandon an old fossil-like haze of coal. Just when we thought getting government out of these things where government has no business to be had delivered us the benefits of competition, policy, of private sector efficiency, and therefore the lower prices we were promised and are enjoying, uh, yes, why is government responsible for cleaning up your mess? Well, first, the community has benefited from our fossils at such bargain basement prices, and second, and more importantly, it was governments that privatised their power utilities. We can't be blamed for that. We can't be blamed for doing what business does. A uh, gouging, a uh, ripping off? Of course not. That is a despicable claim, no. Doing the best by our shareholders. But as these are essential services, isn't your first obligation to the community? Essential, the only essential, is making a killer a reasonable profit. And don't forget our shareholders are members of the community. But back where we were, as a cyclone and extreme weather attacked Troubluwazi communities, local MP up north, George Christian, man and a woman, family son, expressed empathy with his electorate but assured them the extreme weather we are experiencing increasingly has absolutely nothing to do with climate change because there is no such thing as climate change. Sure, scientists predicted this cyclone-prone coast could experience fewer but much, much more severe cyclones because of the climate change that isn't climate change. But what would they know? George knows. He's a Member of Parliament. But as everyone talked about the disaster, the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review expressed its sympathy with a P1 headline calling it a catastrophe. For the local people suffering incredible damage, I hear? Well, no. It was a catastrophe for the insurance industry. But then, what else would we expect? After the cyclone had swept through, Malcolm and little Billy headed up to show how much they cared, and I thought, all the victims would breathe a sigh of and declare how much better they feel, and even better next day when Her Most Gracious Majesty's man in true blue he, trained killer Peter Corr's Graves turned up. He could tell a few war stories and relate them to the disaster. He, he loves a bit of war, the old Pete. But the highlight was a shot for the telecameras, Malcolm and little Billy side by side, pushing floodwaters out of some building with these big brooms while staring at the camera. And I thought, that's the most natural shot I've seen in years. And Malcolm dropped into Rockhampton yesterday, making the people feel better that they were about to be inundated. No, not with self-seeking politicians, but water. And surely, unless he has mastered the King Canute theory and can turn back the waters, he was useless. Contribution, zilch. And little Billy sloshed and waded around in the mud of the receding waters further south. Contribution, ditto. But cyclone-hit buildings and flora weren't the only thing shaking this week. Caring employers in boardrooms across the country were shaking with terror at the prospect of poverty at this outlandish minimum wage claim by the bloody evil unions who just don't seem to care how their actions will destroy this country. And anyway, Malcolm and Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Macadia Kosh, workers, assured us the lowest of low paid don't need an increase because they all live in, all belong to, filthy rich families in mansions in filthy rich suburbs, making this evil union claim even more irresponsible and thankfully a truly independent voice offered the solution to the boss's dilemma and to the problem as the experts who know all about the greatest little economic order of them all keep telling us of slow wages growth and we in our naive way well won't include you listener i stupidly suggested the simple answer was just increase wages but no First, we mentioned last week, former Fair Work was he no longer work choices, just looks like advice supremo Graham wants a fair wage son. Like Macadia, a former free-kills-the-workers-a-parachick who resigned, claiming the con mission was too biased toward workers and poor, caring employers were being crucified. Well, finally, good news. Graham, with his revered independence, repeated his ingenious solution to low wages and unemployment. Make wages even lower. Problem solved. The minimum wage is slaughtering poor caring employers. Alongside these crippling no one can be worse off restrictions. It is grossly unfair, Graham argues, knowledgeably, that caring employers can't register agreements that make workers worse off. And now there's a kerfuffle developing over one of his final independent decisions. Dismissing an evil union application for domestic violence leave to be included in awards. The con mission may review his decision and poor Graham says this is just another example of beleaguered caring employers being crucified. Imagine what will happen to them in two weeks when it's Easter. Thankfully, as we fear how much further to the left the Commission may tilt at the sad loss of Graham, good news. We reported last week in the real world the government has made three new appointments to the Commission, all truly independent, caring business class appointments, including former Chamber of Profits Supremo Peter Anderson, who, after running the Chamber of Profits, was advisor to former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations Peter Root, the workers, when Peter Peter, or the two Peters, rooted the workers. And another corporate workplace lawyer like Graham and the employment lawyer with the Troubles Aussie Farmers Federation, the very independent arbiters, the Pro-Worker Commission needs to restore a better balance. Perhaps we can make this workers' paradise even more ecstatic by adopting that progressive policy from Belarus. Find the unemployed for being unemployed. That'd stop them being a drain on the public purse. Not that they practice the policy without compassion. You have to be unemployed for several weeks before they fine you, and we all know the unemployed would have ample resources to pay the fine, and there's no way caring employers would exploit them. I need a job by tomorrow or I'll be fined. Sure, sure, I can help you. And then the caring employer would offer the maximum possible in wages and conditions because caring employers would never exploit that opportunity. Top marks to the Socialist Party back here after spending eons at taking Malcolm and the team for promoting tax cuts for the filthy rich while attempting to slash services for the very unrich. Now the tax cut bid has been achieved, the Socialists will promise to rescind it if they are elected, we assume. Well, they do nothing less maybe even increase taxes on the filthy rich and, more importantly, make every effort to collect them because the filthy rich often, indeed more often than not, just forget to pay them. Well, well, they've got a lot on their minds trying to make the world a better place. Anyway, top marks because Socialist Party economic guru Chris Bowen to Capital refused to commit to rescinding the tax cut. That's what we love about the socialists, isn't it? Don't we have to admire their courage? Then again, Caring Business Profits Council Supremo Jennifer Wastecut said the government had wasted a cut because a two tier tax system wouldn't work and thus the Profits Council would be forced to continue campaigning for a bigger tax cut for all filthy rich which to us, listener, comes as one hell of a surprise. We'd never have thought. And finally, also hard to believe, but Jennifer said it, so it must be true, businesses would structure themselves to get below the 50 million threshold, and therein lies the problem. Business would, quote, plan for tax purposes rather than growth. It's a worry, isn't it? Although they've managed to grow while paying no tax at all, so... I'm not sure I do see the problem. Good afternoon.
1: And I'm quite sure that Mr Kevin Healy will be celebrating his birthday probably right now and into the evening and just hope that he's up and aboard by 9 o'clock tomorrow for city limits here on 3CR. Saudi Arabia is the only country in the world named after a family. But who are they? Where did they come from? and what is their role in the many conflicts in the Middle East and Northern Africa this century. I'm speaking with Tim Anderson, Senior Lecturer in Political Economy at Sydney University. How far back do we need to go to get an explanation or a a beginning to the the family of Saud?
3: Well, um, there is some important links to a guy called Wahhab, who was working for the British 250 years ago, I believe it was, who really was the founder of this cult of Wahhabism, which is the type of highly sectarian, vicious religion which supports the family, Al Saud. And this is the ideology which is said to be behind most of the, the terrorist groups in the Middle East, the idea that there's such extreme sectarianism that they're justified in attacking and killing people just for having other beliefs. And that Wahhabi cult really goes back something like 250 years. But the other important milestone is when the British developed their close relationship with the Sauds through Lawrence of Arabia, you know, through the war, the First World War with the eventual destruction of the Ottoman Empire. And after the First World War, the British and the French divide up amongst themselves, all of that previous territory that was controlled by the Ottomans and delegate some of it to the country that's now named after a family, the only country that's named after a family, Saudi Arabia, and Jordan, which is the cousins of theirs. You know, So the, the partition of the Middle East after the First World War is when the Saud family gets its own territory. It wanted much more at the time, but it also plays an important role in helping the British at that time, this is like, you know, nineteen twenty, to control the Middle East through sectarianism.
1: What about France in that time?
3: So France is the power in Syria and Lebanon. The British have Palestine and Iraq. And France of course is playing a similar sort of game, although there's a certain there's a fair amount of jealousy between the French and the British. They both have their empires back a hundred years ago and indeed there's there's some significant fighting between them over the the partition of the spoils of the Ottoman Empire, you know, between the boundaries of Palestine and um, and Jordan and Syria and, of course, the the creation of this artificial state in Lebanon, very like the Northern Ireland, it seems to me, um, at about the same time when there's an artificial majority of Christians in Lebanon, which is carved out of greater Syria, like Northern Ireland is an artificial majority of loyalists mostly Protestant loyalists in a part that's carved out of the north of Ireland at that time. So it's a device that the British use as they use a little bit later on 27 years later on with the partition of India and Pakistan.
1: So the French weren't interested in Arabia or were they forced out by the British?
3: Well the British had a greater presence in Iraq at that time so and uh, in the Arabian Peninsula so yeah. the British have a a stronger role there, the French had their stronger presence in in Syria and Lebanon, and so that, that colonial history begins... Well, the French actually had a history going back before, even under the Ottomans, the French had a, had a history in greater Syria. You know, so a lot of people in Syria talk about greater Syria still, as including parts of Saudi Arabia and Palestine and Lebanon and so on, that that bigger area. You know, I've been, I've been told that this prominent person's grandfather could go from Antalya, you know, the, the south... West corner of Turkey, which was also Syria, and was still a bone of contention between Syria and Turkey. But that was carved out because Turkey, as the core of the old Ottoman Empire, had to indeed fight for its existence and against the colonial powers at that time. They took a, a slice of northeastern Syria into into, into um, northwestern Syria into southwestern Turkey. From that area down to Hijaz in Saudi Arabia, was considered the Shum, the you know the, the Syria of those times.
1: Most people are familiar with the terms Shia and Sunni. Where does Wahhabism fit in with those two?
3: Wahhabism is a separate sort of cult. It pretends to represent Sunni-majority Islam, but of course it doesn't, and it's rejected by most Sunni leaders around the world. The problem has been in recent decades that the Saudis have quite effectively used their money to build mosques and extend their influence, not necessarily that their ideology is taking over those mosques, but the the sheikhs of those, including in Australia, for example, the sheikhs of those mosques, the leaders of those mosques, more or less don't want to bite the hand that feeds them because there is this, this very powerful influence of funding mosques and, to some extent, schools, although here they're mainly funded by the government, to extend the influence of Saudi. So you won't find, you won't find very many mosques in Australia that criticise Wahhabism, ideology of wahhabism in india there's been much more of it there's been uh, been a very large groups of muslim leaders who've criticized wahhabism because they haven't been in the the money circuit so much but the the hand of saudi arabia in in funding mosques has really had a very strong influence on silencing a lot of sunni leaders but you, you can't say that uh, sunni muslims really um are really you know that wahhabism has a strong ideological base there at all basically it most Muslims are, are quite tolerant in many ways. So this this intolerant, violent strain of Islam, many people say that it's, um, it's an attempt to, it's a deliberate attempt to destroy Islam because, of course, a lot of Muslim shrines and sites have been destroyed across the Arabian Peninsula. You know, and, and what you see with ISIS and al-Qaeda destroying older historic sites um, like in Palmyra, for example, in Tadmur in Syria you know, the destruction of those sites there. Bear in mind that there's been very strong Islamic dynasties, including quite intolerant Islamic dynasties in the past, that have allowed all of those old mosques to exist with their heterodox forms, you know, including some, you know, images of humans and old Christian elements and Shia elements and so on. Those things exist across the the Middle East, basically, but they weren't necessarily destroyed by earlier intolerant dynasties. It's the, the Wahhabism of today that's been far more virulent in, in those sorts of attacks. If you look also at the civil war in Lebanon in the 70s, it ended up being largely a, a Muslim-Christian divide in Lebanon. So the even as recently as the 70s in Lebanon, which is highly sectarian by its constitution, you know, the, by the constitution people are and by their passports and ID cards and so on, they're defined according to the r- religious community, which is really an awful thing and often a a dangerous thing. But in the 70s, the Sunni and the Shia groups were against the the Christian groups, particularly the Christian groups that were allied with Israel at that time. So it's a relatively recent thing, and the the Sunni-Shia schism, although it's got its own history, the recent politicization of it has a lot to do with the politics of the Middle East in the last few decades, and particularly since the Iranian Revolution in the late 70s.
1: What's the, the world view of Wahhabism? What do they hope to achieve?
3: It's not really so much a, a doctrinal thing I mean, or, a, let's say, a, a theological, ph- philosophical thing because Wahhabism was really a cult of sheikhs who were set up to basically support the, the Saud royal family. So it's, it's a highly politicised, Operation and the the influence of the Saudi family in that region is all-important to the Saudi regime. Now, this is a bit different to their collaborators in the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood started in the 20s in Egypt and moved to Syria. It's a very sectarian movement, which in Egypt and Syria at least, you might say less so in Southeast Asia, that it's a network which has collaborated with Wahhabism and al-Qaeda at different times i mean the ideology of al-qaeda comes directly from wahhabism directly from the saudi version of it but the difference is that the muslim brotherhood is genuinely indigenous in a sense to groups within egypt and syria and even though they collaborate in the war on syria in the last six years there's a jealousy that the saudis have the saudi family has that this type of network may displace their power so you find the little Petro monarchy of Qatar which doesn't have much of a uh, doesn't have as, as strong a presence as Saudi Arabia in the, in the Gulf in the Arabian Gulf or the Persian Gulf they have been great supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood and similarly the current regime in Turkey under Erdogan is a Muslim Brotherhood regime because they more or less have the Ottoman fantasies of trying to resurrect that type of Ottoman empire through a Muslim Brotherhood of states particularly when there was a Muslim Brotherhood Presidency in Egypt. But the Saudis are rather wary of that because they think it, it's, they're jealous. Even though the ideology is shared, they work together, most of the time the Al-Qaeda groups and the other Islamist groups um, groups have worked together, but they fight from time to time. And to some extent that reflects the, the jealousies of their sponsors.
1: When was oil discovered and how has that changed?
3: Well, it was around the, in the early 20th century really at the time of the you know the british and the french were aware of it at the time of the the british in particular because they were the biggest operators in the early 20th century and i suppose the the british oil companies were the pioneers in making that shift from coal across to oil because in the 19th century you know the coal-fired ships were were important and coal was still an important source of transport energy so in iraq and in in the uh, the persian gulf the British companies were the pioneers of that, and that was, you know, of course, an important part of their operations. Well, our operations, getting the Australians over to the Ottoman Empire, you know, in, in 1915, and the whole Anzac, Anzac myth and so on, was a lot to do with the British getting control of the oil resource in the Persian Gulf uh, with that transition from coal to oil. So that's why, after the First World War, the u s um, although they'd become involved in the First world war, had no real serious presence in the Middle East theater, so that's why it was the British and the French that still had the you know significant military and economic power at that time they were They were keen and the British in particular keen on on getting their oil resources so that that whole process of dismantling the Ottoman Empire and getting hands on the, on the oil resources of the middle east was was quite central to the British aims at that time.
1: And what did the U.S. manage to achieve there?
3: The U.S. didn't have a strong presence at that time in the Middle East. That's why it all fell to the British in particular. Later, of course, I mean, the the U.S. enriched itself from the First World War because um, the British went into debt, the French went into debt over that huge operation. They claimed in the old colonial way that they were entitled to the spoils of destruction of the Ottoman Empire because... They had paid the price in blood and so on, and this was the the fruit of, of conquest. This was, of course, prior to the United Nations, prior to the idea that you can't take over another people's land through military conquest, but that was still the notion there. The U.S. had enriched themselves financially and industrially through the First World War, but they didn't really claim the leading role until after the Second World War. And then you, you see a process of the the British effectively... Handing over their links in the Middle East to the U.S., for example, there's some famous pictures of the the U.S. introducing the Saudi King to President um, Eisenhower in the 50s. So that sort of transition happened also through the the coup against the the democratic government in Iran in in 1953 54, where the motive for that was the uh, the Mossadegh government in Iran's nationalisation of the British Petroleum oil fields in Iran at that time. But the the reaction to that, the counter-reaction, the coup, Operation Ajax, uh, under the CIA name of it, was really installed U.S. interests in, in Iran under, under the Shah from 1954 through to 1979. So in that sense, uh, the British were there, but as a subordinate player after that, because the, the U.S. military industrial network and the US oil firms gained the upper hand through that coup in Iran, for example, in the, in the 50s. And that set the tone for US domination of the region in the, in the post-World War II era.
1: And when did Israel become involved?
3: Well, Israel, as you know, uh, famously the British, uh, when they got this so-called Palestine mandate after the destruction of the Ottoman Empire and um, after the First World War, didn't really move on until after the Second World War. And then, you know, the, the idea that it was the, the, the Balfour Declaration after the First World War was a letter from one of the British officials to Lord Rothschild and the Zionist um, movement at that time, which had been going since the, I, think, I believe, the late 19th century, that there was going to be land provided under the British acquisitions from the Ottoman Empire to the Jewish people as a state, without, of course, acknowledgement of the, the rights of the Palestinian people at that time. Then when they managed in the United Nations to get a resolution in favour of the creation of the State of Israel in the late 40s, of course remember, the United Nations in the late 40s was a, a small sort of affair dominated by the, the victors of the Second World War. They managed to get support, uh, wide support for that in the, the creation of Israel in the late 1940s. And of course then the intensity of, although there had been Jewish migration before that time, with the creation of that state there was a a huge ethnic cleansing operation begun, which has never really finished in that time. There have been different waves of it, but the ethnic cleansing of Palestine begins in that late 40s period because of the initiative to create Israel, even though you might say that there were, that there is an unfulfilled mandate to provide a state for the Palestinian people at that time too, but that was never really followed through. So we've had this asymmetric process of acting on the the resolutions that uh, backed Israel but not on the ones that backed the Palestinian people.
1: And this cozy relationship with the US and the UK, with Saudi Arabia, supplying them with arms, huge amounts of arms and then fighting their wars with them.
3: Yeah. I mean the Saudis are paying dollars for these arms and they're certainly the biggest purchaser of arms in the world to this day. Of course they're using Uh, a fair amount of them against the Yemeni people but we know that the bulk of those arms have been going to clandestine groups basically, you know supposedly with their own means but in fact being provided being re-exported by the Saudis to ISIS and Al-Qaeda groups and the other Salafist groups that linked in with them. That hasn't been enough for them to destroy Syria although they've done a lot of damage the groups in Iraq, we know from 10 years ago when the Al-Qaeda in Iraq was created, and it didn't exist under the government of Saddam Hussein. But when it was created very rapidly, it became dominated by Saudis. And they were funding it. They were arming it precisely to try to weaken the relationship between Baghdad and and Tehran. And the, uh, Because Bush administration in 2003, in their zeal to get rid of what they saw as a loose cannon in Saddam, who'd collaborated with them before must have known that this was one of the things that was preventing a, a more natural good neighborly relationship between iraq and iran ethnically were the countries have been fairly close but that relationship was damaged you know with the war that was incited between iraq and iran in the 80s and so on so after saddam's regime is is, is removed there's this vacuum into which a a more genuinely representative government of iraq albeit under the the occupying power at that time starts to move uh, closer and closer to Iran. And so the U.S. begins this process of trying to inflame the so-called Sunni-Shia divide in reality using Wahhabi forces to try and put a a big barrier between Iraq and Iran. It doesn't work. It hasn't worked uh, to this day. uh, Iran and Iraq are quite close. Iraq, even... I suppose a lot of us imagined that this was a puppet state from its early days in the post-Saddam period, but even back then, the Iraqi government was giving oil contracts to the Chinese and the Russians and so on and developing good relationships with Iran. And so the relationship between the post-Saddam government in Iraq and the occupying power, really, in many respects still, to a large degree, the occupying power, the U.S., has been a, a poor one in the last decade, and, and that's why they've subverted, tried to subvert that government and tried to fragment Iraq, you know, with the Kurdish card, creating a federation, and still with this idea of trying to use the Kurdish card against both Iraq and Syria.
1: Can you talk about the historic relationship between Saudi Arabia and Yemen?
3: Well, Yemen was divided for a long time. You know, there was a north and south Yemen, but it, in many respects, um, Saudi Arabia being... The closest neighbor and with a long border there and sharing geography as much as anything else, tried to control that little state. And only in the last couple of years, with a, a genuine revolution within uh, Yemen, has that nexus been broken basically. And uh, a great deal of resentment has been behind the, the revolution in, in Yemen, which was the most organic, genuine revolution in the so-called Arab Spring period. But the Saudis move very rapidly to crush that, including by, because they still control some parts of Yemen, they've been able to block the payment system and not only wage war against the, the new popular government in, in Yemen, which is not a sectarian one, and it's linked into... It has much wider links there, including to the army. But the Saudis still have enough influence to try and block, for example, the importation of, of food, and there's a serious crisis as we speak in Yemen apart from the war, that the famine, which has been already affecting large parts of the country, is going to be exacerbated because the Saudis have blocked a payment system which could pay for the importation of wheat, for example. So it's, it's a long history there, but the Yemeni people, and it's quite a big country, there's well over 20 million people in Yemen, as big as Australia, as big as Syria in, in population terms, but the poorest country in the region, but tremendous determination to resist this this Saudi onslaught. So the Saudis have their own neo colonial war, which the, the big powers have, you know, shed some tears in the United Nations but continue selling weapons to the the Saudis to maintain this repression in Yemen. The Saudis aren't doing very well. The Yemeni people are known like the Afghans are known to be tremendous fighters, even with very very little resources, very little weapons. They they're tremendously determined and united fighters. So the Saudis are not doing very well in this war, but it's, of course, having a terrible toll.
1: What's been the role of the Saudis in northern Africa? I'm thinking of Egypt and Libya.
3: Well, they, in, uh, in Libya, of course, it was a very similar situation to Syria that they backed Salafi groups linked into, whether they were Muslim Brotherhood or ISIS, and now there's a very open ISIS presence, or, you know, they don't call it ISIS, but... Islamic State presence, which US officials, including John McCain and Lindsey Graham, have been openly photographed awarding these people, you know, congratulating them for overthrowing the Gaddafi government. That's, of course, not so simple there. Qatar played probably the most important role in the destruction of Libya in 2011, with, on the one hand, arming the, the Islamists in Benghazi, but also producing a huge wave of fake news about these stories that Gaddafi was massacring civilians and so on. This was really the, a complete a radicalisation or a, a, an introduction of extremist fake news into Al Jazeera, which had significant credibility before 2011 in the, in the Muslim and Arab world, but lost it with what they were doing in, in Libya and Syria in 2011. So Qatar played an important role there. The Saudis have played an important role through the region, in the Sudan, remember also where you've got mixed Arab, black African populations. Throughout the world, really, but certainly North Africa, the Saudi money, again, this Wahhabization process that providing money and introducing these sectarian ideas, very strong. In the first instance, there's a strong denunciation of Shia Islam. So the focus, like with the Muslim Brotherhood, is the great focus of their struggle is to destroy the apostates, you know, the people who have broken from what they consider the real religion to try and insist that this Wahhabi ideology represents majority Muslims, which it clearly does not, and to identify and target and attack those, particularly those influential groups of minority Muslims, the Shia and the Alawi, for example. So they do this in Africa as well, in Pakistan too, although they've become quite skillful at, at developing partners, you know, with their money to to carry out these sorts of operations because once you start talking about sectarian politics the interesting thing is that the sectarians themselves, maybe it's unsurprising but the sectarians themselves have terrible problems with each other You know, they really hate other little sects that are, to us seem quite similar like the Dayabandis in South India for example in Pakistan um, it, it seems to be a similar ideology to Salafism but within their own way of looking at things um, these people deserve beheading as much as the Christians and the Alawis and the Shias, for example. So it's the poison of this ideology that's really been a really important tool for the big powers to to maintain their control of the of the whole Middle East and North Africa region. You know, it's not just that the Saudis have oil and a lot of money, and uh, uh, but they can use the sectarian card, and because they're so politically de- dependent on. U.S. in particular, and Washington in particular, Washington has a very powerful tool.
1: And we turn a blind eye to the human rights abuses that are, are happening in Saudi Arabia.
3: Well, in Saudi Arabia, in Bahrain, in 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 Kuwait, in throughout the region. I mean, the idea—it's extraordinary—the idea that a lot of the pretext for attacking. Syria, for example, was to do with democracy. Syria is streets ahead of all of those other countries in terms of democracy. Long way ahead. Very, very long way ahead. And yet, you know, there's some sort of pretense that this is something to do with democracy or dictatorship in, in Syria. It's just bizarre. You know, you have such a lot of examples of extremist monarchies with this ugly, misogynistic ideology, you know, sectarian in the extreme in the region. And you choose Syria, which is the most pluralist state, most pluralist, and inclusive state in the whole region. It, that tells you how fake the whole idea of any pretext of attacking Syria on the basis of its system of government are. You know, because the allies in Qatar and Bahrain, which ha, which is involved in a serious repression of its uh, Shia majority by uh, another one of these Gulf monarchies, the Arab League has been destroyed by this. Of course, you know the fact that.
1: these kingdoms will remain in the near future?
3: Well, not necessarily. I mean, the the financial situation is running out to a degree. It was thought that the money in Saudi Arabia would, would never run out, but
1: Thanks very much Tim. Thanks for that And that of course was Dr. Tim Anderson Senior Lecturer in Political Economy at Sydney University. And if you're going to anything at the Comedy Festival this year one not to be missed is Trotsky and Friends It's um, coming back after a fantastic premiere in the International Comedy Festival last year Trotsky and Friends, and I believe it's bigger and better than ever, and of course our great friend Chris Gaffney is one of the characters, and I'll just read the first little bit. The time is January 1913, the setting, Café Central, Vienna, Austria. Leon Trotsky struggles to finish a manuscript before its deadline, but is interrupted by Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung whose bitter feuding and brazen rivalry shows no sign of abating. Vladimir Lenin, keen to push on with his plans for revolution while suffering from a venereal disease, introduces Lenin to an ambitious Joseph Stalin and an impressionable Tito. Yet the four quarrel and compete unceasingly. And it's a comedy, and it's at La Mama. So it's from the 5th of April to the 16th of April. And if you'd like to go, give them a call or better still, get on the web and find out about Trotsky and Friends. And I'm sure that Chris would be thrilled to see you in the audience. I'm speaking now with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. The update of the trial in Morocco of 24 Sahrawi human rights activists It's rapidly descending into farce. Just to remind listeners, Kate, these men were charged after Morocco military and police violently broke up a a peaceful protest in a desert camp in 2009. They were found guilty on murder charges by a military court, sentenced to very long prison sentences. After years of appeals, the government agreed to retry the men in the civilian court. On the 13th of March, the third adjournment of the retrial opened in Rubat. What happened after that?
4: I believe that its trial is being uh, heard before the appeal court. Whether it's working under all the rules of an appeal is not quite clear. This would affect what evidence can be heard, for example. The thing is that the trial should be a new trial, a new trial of first instance, in a court of first instance, because the old one was quashed. And then new evidence could be produced or anything like that. But if it's an appeal, they can only consider what was put before the court the first time. And that first time, the court refused to hear certain witnesses that were brought, for example, that might have been able to testify to the fact that one of the accused was actually apprehended and uh, arrested the day before the main events took place when the Moroccans came in and broke up the camp. They took him the day before. So it makes it all the more ridiculous that he should be accused of crimes that took place during that break-up the dismantling of the camps happened at dawn i say with no warning but they had helicopters flying over telling people to evacuate the camp everybody knew that something was going to happen because it been this build-up of all these vehicles around the perimeter of the camp but it still didn't need to happen in quite such a violent and brutal way as it did i don't know if we'll ever know exactly how or why a number of people did get killed. They were really all Moroccan. And I just don't know whether, you know, it was the young Saharouis getting very angry or something else happened, like they were just explosions of gas cylinders and things like that. But 24 Sahrawis who are before the court are accused of the death of these 11 Moroccans but one thing that you, you you couldn't be accused of is uh, if you're not actually there. They have apparently been willing to listen to some of the witnesses that weren't heard before, and so there is a little bit of hope that a more just verdict may result.
1: But these so-called crimes took place in Western Sahara. The court is in Morocco.
4: Yes, true. That is itself against international humanitarian law, which says that it should be tried in the country where the alleged offences occurred.
1: Foreign observers, foreign lawyers supporting the Sahrawi?
4: That's right, yes. There's a number of uh, international observers. The trial is, this is the third hearing of this trial I, I suppose I should make clear. It's again been adjourned. There will be another hearing before any judgment is reached. And and this particular hearing lasted quite a long time, like about 10 days, I think. And it was finally adjourned at about 11 o'clock at night. So they were sitting long hours, but haven't heard of a very detailed report yet about exactly what went on. Uh, I do know that the French lawyers who had been accepted as representing the so how do we accuse human rights defenders, were not allowed to present their case to the court, but it sounds like you know other, other things have been happening during this hearing and hopefully we will get a detailed report in due course, but it, not long since it's finished and maybe those people, those international observers, need to go home to be able to write up their report.
1: Was there a report on the health of the 24 in custody?
4: One of the complaints was that when they complained of torture originally no investigation was made and no examination was medical examination was made that one of them was in court with blood on his head and another one showed injuries he had to his fingers and toes These were not followed up and they were not given a medical examination, which, again, should be conducted according to the UN rules and and international conventions that Morocco is a party to. But there, there was one case where they had a subsequent examination and they said it was so long after the torture was alleged to have happened they couldn't assess whether anything was due to that or not so I suppose that's one of the tricks in the book is postpone it long enough and and then you can claim you can't tell how these uh, things happened or or if it's a question of bruising of course bruising does eventually go away it's now six years after the these people were apprehended and so uh, anything that happened at that time there would only be certain kinds of injury that would still be remaining.
1: The wife of one of the accused is a French citizen. She was refused entry into the country?
4: She was, uh, and that's actually the third time. I think it may be related to the fact that a film has been made about the group and particularly about her husband, Enama Asari, The film has been circulating all around France and even they had a screening in Algeria. In this past, I'm just trying to remember exactly when it happened, when it first came out, I should think that the Moroccan authorities are not very happy about that film and it may be that she's being punished because of that.
1: Last time we spoke, Kate, you said that Morocco was now back into the African Union and, and it would appear that um, some nations were given nice presents to make sure that they voted the right way in bringing them back into the AU. But there was a, a, a meeting of the Peace and Security Committee of the AU and um, Morocco no, not, didn't it turn up. That's right. They,
4: they went back to what the what is sometimes called the politics of the empty chair. Maybe it was just as well because the African Union... Then issued a very good statement about western sahara and called for the early implementation of the referendum of self-determination it called on morocco not to conclude any trade deals including uh, western sahara uh, which would be in keeping with the european court of justice findings And so, yes, in that way, that that statement was able to be published without any interference from Morocco. But it's not a good sign if they're not willing to be party to general policy of the uh, AU and if they aren't willing to use the opportunity of being inside the organisation to reach a resolution of this problem.
1: But they did turn up to another meeting in Senegal, which was a UN and AU meeting, and actually it was in a big way this time.
4: That's right. Then they went back to playing uh, tricks and manoeuvres. The meeting in Senegal was called Africa Development Week, and it was a joint meeting between the African Union and the United Nations. They had serious business to conduct. They wanted to work together and get, you know, things moving for for many African countries where the UN can be of assistance. The first thing that happened was that when the Sahrawi delegation arrived, they found the Moroccan delegation already there and occupying not only their seats, but the Western Sahara seats as well. So they complained, and there was a lot of discussion about what should happen. The... Moroccan delegation claimed that because Western Sahara is not a member of the United Nations they couldn't be a, a present in this meeting but when you have a joint meeting between two bodies you're not necessarily member of both bodies. It seemed as if whoever was in charge found it very difficult to resolve this and the shenanigans continued for two or three days. Afterwards there was a um, interview on CNBC Africa, which is a uh, consumer and investor kind of uh, channel, consumer and business channel, I think it's called. They interviewed the uh, South African chief statistician who I think he's called Pali Loela. Uh, he was very angry. He didn't name any names. But he said that it was a disgrace and it was disgusting that they had wasted all these days talking about trivia instead of considering the matters that they had been brought together to discuss. He was really angry that because of this, another meeting was going to have to be called and it had to happen quite soon before some other, you know, to go fit into the timetable before some other thing was happening in July. He said, and if it happens again, anybody disrupting the meeting will be simply thrown out because it is intolerable, he said, that this should carry on. So I don't know how much uh, weight he will carry, but let's hope that he's not the only one with those views and that next time Morocco will not be allowed to play these games.
1: What happens in the United Nations in April concerning Western Sahara each year?
4: Oh, yes. Now, uh, every year, it it, it usually is April, because uh, the the mandate of Minerso is considered for renewal. Minerso is the United Nations mission for Western Sahara, and it's part of the, the words in the acronym are for a referendum of self-determination in Western Sahara. So it's not just a mission there, it's a mission that's got this particular task which it has been unable to carry out for all these years. It was set up in 1991. But every year the Security Council hears a report about how things are going, uh, whether the ceasefire has been holding or any violations of it, what the Minerso Force has been doing, uh, because there are a number of stations around within the territory held by Morocco as well as the part of the country that is under Mor- uh, Polisario control. Generally, if, and if there have been any peace talks, that, that is all part of that report. And when they consider that, they, uh, so far every time they have renewed the mandate of the mission, sometimes they make it for one whole year and sometimes if they think, the matter needs reviewing sooner, they then uh, make it only for six months. I don't know what will happen this time because Minerso was expelled from Western Sahara by Morocco. Only a small number of the mission have been allowed to return. They say 25, but I'm still not quite sure that we've had proper confirmation that that is the number that returned. But 80 or more were actually left. Morocco said that it was okay to have the peacekeeping ones that were actually um, monitoring the ceasefire. They didn't mind those people being there, the sort of more military component, if you like, but they didn't want any of the political component who were arranging the peace talks and doing other things like uh, they arrange or they used to be arranging exchange visits between the Sahara refugee camps and the occupied territory so that families could be reunited who hadn't seen each other for all of this exile. All of those um, confidence-building measures, they call them. All of that seems to be still in limbo, and the new secretary-general called for the mission to... You know, resume in full strength. The outgoing head of the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, Hervé Ladzou, he also said that he was very concerned about the state of the mission. I think we'll be looking forward to hearing what the assessment actually is when the personal envoy reports in the name of the Secretary-General in April his report should be published fairly soon obviously they need to consider the report for some time before the vote the vote doesn't usually happen till the end of the month but the report will be coming out and published quite soon would hope that they would co- again consider giving the not just restoring the mission but giving it added powers particularly those in favor of the Sahrawi side are particularly concerned about the impunity with which Morocco represses human rights in the occupied zone and they think that the mission should have the capacity to monitor human rights and report back. But Morocco is, of course, very against that.
1: Has there been another example that that you know of where a UN mission like Minersa has been most of their workers have been expelled?
4: I've not ever heard of that happening before and I don't really know quite why they complied with Morocco's attempt to expel them. It seems to me that they're not there at the invitation of Morocco. They're there because Western Sahara is a non-self-governing territory and the United Nations decided to send the mission to resolve the dispute. Morocco behaves as if they; uh, it is the host of this mission, but it's um, only very technically the host insofar as they're the occupying power.
1: There have been a, a number or a couple of protests in Western Sahara in recent days.
4: But the one they got most excited about was uh, where a, a whole lot of young unemployed people Uh, seized a bus that the bus belonged to Phosphoukra which is the phosphate mining company in Western Sahara it's a subsidiary of the Moroccan company OCP the Office de de Phosphate that's the company that we in Australia import phosphate from the Australian importer is Incitec Pivot it's based in Melbourne and we are always asking them to uh, put their imports on hold from this particular source until the issue of Western Sahara is resolved. But uh, anyway, the young people took on, uh, occupied this bus. It was quite late at night, I think, and the police were very excited about it, and they came and they broke the windows, they sprayed inside the bus with water cannon but but they didn't dislodge the protesters immediately they were complaining that they had been passed over for jobs at the uh, phosphate mining company sometimes the company takes young people in as kind of trainee cadets they are expecting to get posts as a result of following this training then they just get sent out again, and so um, uh, I think that may be what happened again.
1: And it wouldn't be a very welcoming committee once they did get out of that bus.
4: Oh no! They—they they, uh, again, it's hard to see exactly what's going on from a, a distance. But I did see videos of people being pursued in the street by police. Now that whether that was young people who had come out of the bus or whether it was other people who were coming out in solidarity and in support because little demonstrations were popping up all over the town as soon as people heard about
1: this. And a single protest in the south of the country?
4: This involved a sea captain who was the captain of a fishing boat at Dakhla in southern Western Sahara. He had been protesting for some time outside the local office of the Ministry of Fisheries, eventually having a sit-in there constantly, but got no answer to his complaints of corruption uh, in the fishing industry. So he um, set himself on fire and he died. This act of self-immolation was a very big protest after such frustration now some of the things that he was complaining about were first of all that the moroccans per- portrayed it as the fact that he was complaining for a lack of job because he his boat had been sunk but he says that it was sunk deliberately in order to get insurance money back by the uh, owner of the boat When he did his report, he was actually pressured very strongly, even threatened with his life, to change the report so that they could collect insurance on on this sinking of the boat. While the boat was working, he also had complaints over some time that the fish catch was being misreported, sometimes half what it actually mean caught, an abuse that he he thought should should not happen. This guy is actually Moroccan, is not uh, a Sahrawi, but the Sahrawi Resources Association has reported all of this because they are very concerned about the way in which their natural resource is being mismanaged by the Moroccans. And they believe that the fisheries should be managed by the UN the United Nations and not while the country is still a self-governing territory officially
1: and not only the fishing there's the vegetable growing as well
4: they do they have the uh, tomato growing under glass there and melons and cucumbers which are mainly owned by the king some of them jointly between Moroccan enterprises and French companies, Idil and Azura. Those are being exported to Europe on the whole. There has been a big controversy in the past about the fact that they were being labelled as uh, Moroccan, whereas their place of origin was Western Sahara. Some supermarkets stopped stocking these tomatoes because of that, Others insisted on the labelling being correctly put on. The new European Union judgment should mean that none of those tomatoes are able to be exported. That will reinforce this, that it can't be exported as a Moroccan product.
1: Finally, Kate, the new date for the trial?
4: Yes, it's going to be coming up in May, early May, some observers, may you might think they're cynics, you might think they're realists, but they have commented that it was uh, pro- probably not a coincidence that the new date is just after the United Nations will have been considering the issue of Western Sahara uh, at the end of April. So the new date uh, is on the 8th of May just a tidy week uh, after the, the UN has uh, finished its deliberations one does wonder
1: OK thanks Kate right. and that is Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association and you are listening to 3CR Whoa Whoa, whoa. Marxism 2017, Australia's biggest left-wing conference. International guests, over 100 sessions. Easter weekend, April 13th to 16th. Victorian College of the Arts.
0: Special guest speakers from the front line against Trump. Black Lives Matter activists Hayley Pesson and Khoury Peterson-Smith. Palestinian freedom fighter, Pesson Kamini.
1: On the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, Marxism 2017.
0: Radical wheels, film festival, art exhibitions, book launches and other cultural events.
2: Marxism 2017, Easter weekend, April 13th to 16th, Victorian College of the Arts. Visit marxismconference.org to secure your tickets.
0: Marxism 2017, a 3CR supporter.
2: 3CR presents an afternoon of great music at the Northcote Social Club on Sunday 30th of April. Ekranoplan's, a bunch of hard rocking psychedelic Soviet sympathisers. Winter Sun, who swing from dirty-ass blues to bittersweet ballads. Plus BJ Mora's who's a weirdo composer and one-man band who combines cartoon music and depressed cowboy pop songs. The Northcote Social Club, High Street, Northcote, on Sunday 30th of April. Doors open at 1.30. Presale discounted tickets at northcotesocialclub.com. Show your love for 3CR and support the musicians who support 3CR. Are
4: you agitated? Are you agitated? Are you agitated? Yeah!
1: On the program recently, Sean Cleary from the Edmund Rice Centre spoke about the refusal of the Oceana Gold Corporation to pay eight million U.S. dollars for legal fees and expenses to the government of El Salvador, as requested by ICSID, the International Center for Settlement of International Disputes, Tribunal of the World Bank. This has not been forthcoming, but there have been significant developments in El Salvador, which Sean will be outlining. First, Sean El Salvador, the court case, it ran over nine years. It was bought against the government of El Salvador for what was claimed lost profits due to the fact that the government of El Salvador in 2008 effectively stopped issuing new mining permits due to environmental and social and human rights concerns. Oceania Gold were ordered to pay. 8 million us to the el salvadoran government as part of their legal costs that was late last year after deciding that the lawsuit was had no merit what's the story now two very significant developments
5: yes jen it's quite exciting the news we've just uh, heard last week two bits of information one was that the International Tribunal, which has been hearing this case, that's based within the World Bank as part of an organisation called ICSID. You know, this is this whole process is just absolutely full of acronym soup. So ICSID stands for the International Centre for the Settlement of Investment Disputes. So this is the way that corporations can sue nations under different investment treaties. And in fact, there's a, an. International convention called the ICSID convention, the convention for this same center. The tribunal that was established for this case, in which uh, Oceania Gold, through their subsidiary PACRIM Cayman, based in Nevada in the US, has been suing the country of El Salvador, the amount got up to 315 million US dollars. In the end, it was brought back to, I think, about 250 million US dollars, so that's almost 400 million Australian dollars. That was decided in October, middle of October last year, and then the lawsuit was deemed to be unsuccessful for Oceana Gold Corporation in, in Melbourne, and in fact they were also ordered to pay $8 million of El Salvador's $13 million costs. And on the 1st of November, El Salvador, uh, just within the 45-day time limit, El Salvador lodged a uh, request for a supplementary decision on regards to that, asking that they should not just be the $8 million, but also the interest on that payment for the time outstanding. So what we got last week from that tribunal was that, yes, the interest would be payable, and so all of this falls due. There was a delay for sort of the 120 days for El Salvador to appeal for Uh, against the award and the way that they appeal is they request or they they lodge an application for an annulment of the award and so for the case to be heard again. And uh, I understand they had 120 days in order to do that, so originally that 120 days would have run from the date of the, the initial decision being made. But then with the request by El Salvador for the supplementary decision, it meant that there was an extra time, the 128 days started counting again. Now what's interesting is that 120 days uh, then starts counting from the 1st of December, which means that last Friday was the day, last day of the 120 days. So today is the first day in which uh, we can say that Oceania Gold needs to really pay up in regards to, to this law case. So that was the first big piece of news then the other even bigger piece of news i guess was that and this perhaps had been a decision which had been delayed because of a law case because of a lawsuit so for a long time the social movements and particularly the local communities in el salvador which are most put at risk through their water supply being contaminated through the if the mine had been opened that they've been calling for a national law to put a a nationwide ban on metals mining in el salvador The basis of that is that it's a tiny country, it's very densely populated, it's the second most densely populated country in the Americas. It is heavily deforested. There's already a lot of stress for access to water. The mine would be using copious amounts of water in order to turn the ore into a slurry from which the gold can be separated. El Salvador, it's also often where you find uh, gold in, in mountains. El Salvador is a country that's uh, on an earthquake uh, fault line, and it's a volcanic area as well, which is also typical of these kind of areas. And then the the other thing is that it's in an area which is, is speaking to you from from Brisbane at the moment, we're just suffering the consequences of the cyclone, uh, Cyclone Debbie, that El Salvador is is repeatedly being hit by hurricanes. So for any mining venture to be thinking of having tailings dams built, just the... The prospects for total contamination of El Salvador's one major river, which provides water to, uh, I think, at least 60% of the water for the capital, which has got about 3 million people that comes from this one river, to then put a a dam, which is poisoned from the cyanide, which is added in, and the arsenic that is released, the mercury is released from the mining, is just, you know, a recipe for disaster. So for all of these reasons, there's been a process calling for a national ban on mining in El Salvador, and that was what was achieved last week, really somewhat as a bit of a surprise that uh, with a unanimous vote in the Legislative Assembly, 69 votes to zero, that this law was passed, and just the way that, uh, that that law came into apparently out of nowhere a little bit, or that, you know that the community groups have been pushing for a long time but not getting anywhere, and now I think we can see that a number of the political parties, or and maybe the government as well, were saying that it's not wise for them to implement the law while the court case was running, uh, remembering this is a court case which uh, an amount for a small country like El Salvador, it was at the, the time when the lawsuit was lodged, uh, the 400 million Australian dollars we're talking about. Um, sorry, the three, uh, yeah, $400 Australian dollars was equal to half the national school's budget. So you could understand them being nervous about not wanting to implement any legislation which was going to put at risk uh, such a large amount.
1: The role of the Catholic Church in pushing for this?
5: That's been pretty amazing throughout this whole process that uh, even under quite conservative bishops in El Salvador, quite conservative leadership, that current Archbishop of San Salvador. He previously was the bishop of the diocese, which is where the proposed mine is based. It's uh, the area that uh, I actually used to live and work in, and I was working there um, originally p- appointed through Jesuit refugee services, so I was working in close liaison with the Catholic Church. It, it's in some ways, to me, seemed like one of the most conservative dioceses in Central America, and interesting that very ecclesially conservative and not necessarily right-wing because, you know, Salvador's, or, or not visibly right-wing, I should say, that uh, a lot of bishops had, been, had clearly aligned themselves with right-wing political parties and right-wing movements, but this diocese and the, the previous bishop there had tried to not uh, be involved in that game but was very increasingly conservative and the net result of that can be in fact i think uh more dangerous because it's not as obvious that uh, you're just protecting interests of the wealthy as it is when you're waving the banner of the party that's protecting interest of the interests of the wealthy so for someone like who comes out of this background uh, very conservative to then do something three weeks ago which he did was unbelievable which was uh i guess Six weeks ago, so called for a uh, throughout the archdiocese for all the parishes to collect petitions calling on the Legislative Assembly to introduce a law banning mining. And then three weeks ago, he led a march from the central plaza up to the Legislative Assembly to deliver this petition, and also together with the current rector, the current Chancellor of the Jesuit uh, University of Central America, the UCA and the previous chancellor that they delivered a piece of legislation to the legislative assembly which was this national law banning mining and on the steps of uh, that same day i watched on youtube the videos of the speeches uh, that the archbishop gave and that the, then the heads of each of the uh, political parties in receiving the petition receiving the law that they then responded to the crowd and responding to the archbishop and, and the chancellor and uh... I couldn't believe that all of the parties were basically saying that they would support this law and it really shows what uh it's impressive that consensus can be arrived on this sort of thing i think that uh, bipartisan unity for the good of the nation and the banners which people from i saw a few people there in the crowd that day and, and again these people went back for the vote which was held last wednesday which finally approved the law the banners saying yes to life, no to mining. So, yeah, it's been quite an incredible week last week, quite quite uh, uh, a, f- a wonderful success from the years of campaigning that uh, they've been involved in in El Salvador, but uh, and then that we've been involved in significantly here since about 2013.
1: There was a delegation from the DPO in the Philippines there to talk to the people?
5: That's right. It was quite coincidental that... Uh, and wonderfully, wonderful timing that uh, the governor of the Nueva Vizcaya province in the Philippines was uh, on a visit to El Salvador to be looking at their campaign, the, the national work that's been happening in El Salvador to try and build the consensus about the impacts of mining and uh, the need to bring strong limits to uh, the way in which National or multinational corporations can uh, can impact on the, the lives of people in in poor communities.
1: And this ban doesn't immediately affect small scale miners, local people.
5: There's a, a two- year period in which it's been that the people who are involved in that kind of work will be scaled out so it's not all of a sudden. but also and this was I think one of the interesting things that uh, amendments that were brought into the law. I was concerned when the right-wing parties were saying they would support it. I was wondering what was going on, but in fact, I think it's been very genuine on their part after visiting one of the areas which has still got damage from mining, which ended 20 years ago, the Commerce Group International Mining Company, where there's a poisoned river in the east of the country in San Sebastian, that uh, I was able to visit that area with uh, Bishop Hilton Deacon from Melbourne in 2015. And just to see the awful state this uh, small creek uh, was in, the yellow stains in the water from the residue from the mine coming through, which is in part due to the previous corporation, but is also probably in part due to the the artisanal mining that uh, people have been involved in. So with the right-wing supporting this, one of the amendments they proposed was that the national government should also take some responsibility and offer some support to people involved in this mining, which is so dangerous to their own health as well. But if you're desperate, you kind of need to provide food to your family and think about uh, which can overweigh your considerations for the, the different poisons which might be affecting you longer term. So certainly there's provisions in the amendments made to the piece of legislation that was presented, which would then require the national government to provide support for these people to find uh, new sources of employment.
1: I'd imagine there would have been huge celebrations in El Salvador and that these people, they would have dedicated the success and to the lives of, and the livelihood of those who died fighting this.
5: That's been really poignant and, and after I listened to the... Videos of this presentation, and three weeks ago when it was so clear, I, I sent an email to uh, a former colleague of mine whose uh, his name's Antonio Pacheco, and he's a close worker that some of your listeners would have uh, been able to meet. Vitalina Morales when she came to visit Australia, and is speaking to uh, that Vidalina is the uh, president of this small group of village farm workers, uh, uh, countryside peasants, who have, through being organized and through the support of international solidarity, have formed their community development organization, which is called ADES, it stands for the the Association for Economic and Social Development of the Santa Marta Communities, cluster of five communities. And so, Vidalina is the president, Antonio is the the, uh, coordinator or CEO, And my message to Antonio was to, you know, say congratulations to him because it's their tiny little organization out in the countryside that back in 2004 made the decision to seek international advisor, technical advice in regards to the environmental impact assessment for the proposed mine, which had been submitted by Pacific Rim Mining, uh, which was a subsidiary of Oceana Gold. Uh, or became a subsidiary of Oceana Gold when Oceana Gold purchased it in 2012, 2013. So that decision when no one knew about this uh, is really what also became the basis for, uh, a strong part of the basis for El Salvador winning the court case because this tiny NGO out in the rural part of the country contracted Robert Moran, an international hydrogeologist, which I didn't know that sort of (laughs) career or technical expertise existed, and he then took the environmental impact assessment that had been submitted to the government as part of the application for a production license and did a review on it and then provided that written review back to Ardes, who contracted him, and then they were able to supply that to the Department of Natural Resources in El Salvador who were then able to see that that was, uh, send, you know, show that to back to the mining company saying, no, you can't have a production license until you correct your uh, environmental impact assessment. And it was the, the refusal of the company to ever resubmit the environmental impact statement is what caused them to lose the law case. So anyway, I, I sent this email to Antonio congratulating him for the foresight and uh, in, with a great humility he came back to me saying that uh, really they did that at the time and they you know, were able to approach Swiss Ecumenical Aid, Diakonia, uh, from the churches, sorry, not Swiss, Swedish, um, the, the churches, Diakonia, the uh, church's ecumenical development organization in Sweden to fund uh, the technical assessment. That their decision to do that, to go down that path, to follow that up, was because he said he felt so embarrassed by Ramiro, who was one of the guys killed in 2009, the first person to be killed. And that uh, it was because he was saying every day Ramiro would, would go past, and that as he was passing the office, he'd say, When are you going to do something to help our villages, our communities? To the possible damage that may become if this mining project is opened up and so it was eventually because of that port that uh, Antonio said that he felt guilty and, and felt the need he was pushed to take action and he's so grateful and so the communities in El Salvador last week were celebrating this process they were really remembering the the three whose lives were lost as uh, in particular, you know, there have been 10 lives that have been lost in this uh, process, but it, it's particularly uh, Marcella Rivera, uh, Ramiro and, and Dora Soto, who were the three local community people most concerned and most talking to their neighbours about we've got to take action about these mining actions. And it was the end of 2009 when the three of them were murdered.
1: Now the task of shipping our Shannon gold out of El Salvador because they've got this El Dorado Foundation operating there.
3: Uh,
5: yes, that's uh and and that's really interesting. Uh and and would also apply to I guess what all multinational corporations do. Uh, so it's it's a PR exercise and uh, it's interesting that even this conservative archbishop in El Salvador has uh, some of his declarations were naming it as a, a PR exercise that, uh, through offering you know a few crumbs to a few people, uh, I think it's computer lessons, having employing a doctor to go through and give consultations to people, health checkups, or, or offer them some kind of support and maybe have a few medicines. It's I think it's a straight out of Cold War, low intensity. Conflicts, the the playbook of the Pentagon, and I'd actually be interested to know whether some of the advisers they've got there are former Green Berets uh, or people trained by Green Berets from the Pentagon, because it's this whole sense of trying to win the hearts and minds of the people, often empty promises. But if you uh, if you and I think the words the Archbishop used to describe it were really apt that he was saying you're taking advantage of people's poverty, that. And, you know, that's one of the, the things in this that most disgusts me about Mick Wilkes and his mates in, Oce- in Oceana Gold boardroom. I find that quite obscene, the taking advantage of people's poverty by offering them a few crumbs uh, from your table, which, which, because they're so poor, they've got no choice but to take advantage of them. And so that is incredibly cynical to me and... and trying to buy people's hearts and minds by saying, oh, look at the wonderful work we're doing. We're offering uh, computer courses to people and we're giving them training in this and we're sending doctors out and well, you know, get real, that if you're really concerned about uh, training and technical development people, you'd be putting funding into the department of education in that area. You wouldn't be having a song, song and dance act when you're delivering a few books to a school. You'd be sort of letting the, the teachers decide and the, the education department decide which school in that region most needed these resources and which resources they needed. It, you'd be putting money into the Department of Health so that they can provide integrated services, not just a few doctors coming on a hit-and-miss basis and and throwing around medicines kind of to make you look good. So, you know, that's I think that's just disgusting. And as Mick Wilk sits in his mansion in Turak uh, and drives in his fancy car into the... Collins Street to the offices of Oceana Gold, I'm just disgusted by that sort of a human being.
1: Well, they could also pay back the eight million that they've been ordered to pay. They could even pay the whole of the court case for El Salvador plus the interest.
5: Yep, yep, that's absolutely right. They should be paying 13 million. They should also be paying, you know, offering to cooperate with the investigation into who killed Ramiro, who killed Marcelo, who killed who killed Dora. Dora was seven months pregnant when she was murdered. Where's the compensation as well for the families of those? So, so sure, I'm prepared to accept that Oceana Gold didn't buy a stake in Pacific Rim Mining, which was then a Canadian exploration company, until 2012. That was their first stake. And then they took over the company at the end of 2013. So, these murders occurred before they'd bought a financial stake. But They were very clear that they were buying they were taking over this corporation and they knew that all of this if they'd done due diligence and they claim they did do due diligence that that's you know they now own this that what they were buying was the history of what had gone on before they bought in they are now the full owners of all those the subsidiaries which were responsible for the conflict and there has been conflict since they bought in as well so I think that there's very much a moral obligation on them to make clear everything that's happened. The guy who was the the manager of the Salvadoran operations of, of this uh, subsidiary, I, I'm not sure whether he was still the manager at the time that Oceania Gold bought in, but he is now in jail for horrendous crimes of of mutilating bodies when he's murdered someone. So. If that's the kind of people that you're saying we want to be partners with you and that's why we're buying this business then the mud that comes from them is certainly stuck on you as well and that's part of the moral responsibility that, that, uh, that they have. Now when we talk about making payments there's actually an option for the board of Oceana Gold and that's part of again why our major process has not only been focused, in, our major processing campaign is not only been focused on this particular mine and whether they get through to open or not, or not only focused on this whole court case. In a sense, when the result came through in October that El Salvador had won the court case, there were a lot of us who were thinking, well, this is not really a victory, because Our complaint is more with a system that allows a corporation to sue a nation and that that's what we think is wrong. And just to highlight how wrong this is, in fact, Oceana Gold, who have been carrying out and who, when they bought the uh, lawsuit, which was practically the only asset that uh, Pacific Rim had at the time when they bought uh, the company for 12 million US dollars, bought through a share swap that basically they, they weren't buying a mine because there was no mine. They were buying a lawsuit, a lawsuit for $315 million U.S. dollars. So the way in which the structures work of the investor state dispute settlement, in fact, Oceana Gold can just walk away from this lawsuit without paying a cent. The reason for that is because the lawsuit has been brought by a wholly owned subsidiary that's based in Nevada in the US. That subsidiary in the US, its name is actually PAC-RIM, which comes from Pacific Rim, PAC-RIM Cayman LLC. The reason it's called Cayman is because it was previously based in the Cayman Islands. And Pacific Rim in Canada moved the subsidiary from the Cayman Islands to Nevada so that they could use the free trade agreement that existed between, that exists between El Salvador and Central America then sue El Salvador. But as a shell company, it has no assets. And so the board of Oceana Gold, Mick Wilkes and his mates, they can just shut down that subsidiary, and there's no assets upon which El Salvador can claim to uh, recover the, the $8 million. If they had an ounce of decency, a gram of decency, a milligram of decency, they would do much more than that. They would pay. At a minimum, the $8 million, they should pay the $13 million El Salvador is expended. They should be compensating the families of those 10 people killed in the conflict, the mining conflicts around this mine, and they should be offering an apology. They should be pulling all of their interests in El Salvador out of the country, and they should be assisting with the investigations into who was responsible for, the, especially the murder of the three uh, environmentalists in the local communities there.
1: Is anyone holding their breath?
5: (laughs) a rhetorical question. You know, I'd I'd thank you for your time, and and I'd encourage all of your listeners to... uh, why Why don't we call the board of Oceana Gold? But the other thing that we have to be aware of, that this is not just these faceless men, Mick Wilkes and his mates in the boardroom, what is allowing them to do this is our superannuation funds. So it's our super money, which is through organisations like uh, AMP, through Citibank, through our, our super funds, which is permitting all of this to go on. So they are doing this in the interest of raising profits because that's what we're telling them to do.
1: And you'll be listening to Sean Cleary from the Edmund Rice Centre in Brisbane, speaking about issues pertaining to victories in El Salvador. And on the program next week, Sean will be talking about Oceanic Gold's other destructive mine in the Philippines, the, the DPO mine. You're listening to 3CR, it's 5.32. You could be listening on your radio. 8.55am, you could be listening on your computer. 3cr.org.au. You can do all sorts of things. You can stream, you can have podcasts, all exciting things on 3cr.org.au.
2: Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing.
0: Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch.
2: They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people.
1: Who does the killing?
2: The company has uh, specially arranged security forces.
1: Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377. There have been many UN resolutions against Israel, the most recent and significant last December, which called settlements in the West Bank and East Jerusalem a fragrant violation under international law, in which the US abstained rather than its usual veto on votes concerning Israel. Then last month, A report broke new ground in the UN's examination of the situation in occupied Palestine by using the word apartheid, an apartheid regime that oppressed and dominates Palestinian people as a whole. It urged governments to support the BDS activities and respond positively to calls for such initiatives. But that's not the end of the story. Pressure from Israel and its allies led to the UN Secretary-General distancing himself from the report and this led to the report's leader resigning. I'm speaking now to activist Kim Bullimore. First, Kim, who commissioned the report?
0: This report was commissioned by uh, a UN agency called um, E-S-C-W-A, the uh, UN Economic and Social Commission for West Asia, which is the name of the organisation. And the report was co-authored by Virginia Tilley, who was a political scientist at the University of Southern Illinois, and also Richard Falk, who is a former UN rapporteur.
1: And what did they write?
0: the whole report was an investigation into whether the regime in place in regard to Palestinians from Israel was an apartheid regime or not. And obviously we know now that their conclusion was, yes, it was. But they also came, within that conclusion, came to a number of new observations that, not that maybe people haven't made them before, but it was probably the first time that it's been documented in such a way. As people know is that you know there's the south african apartheid regime people are the most familiar about that and often the criticisms of the apartheid analogy with israel from uh, israel apologists and zionists and the israeli state is that usually you know say oh well you know israel is nothing like uh, south africa and that is true uh apartheid in israel is very different to south africa but um when tilly and Falk wrote this report they They are not trying to make a comparison with South South Africa. Uh, Similar to the BDS movement, what they base the analogy on is what they base their assessment on, on whether it's apartheid or not, is the actual international law that exists. In particular, they use the uh, 1973 Convention on the Suppression and Punishment of the Crime of Apartheid, which very clearly documents in a lot of detail what exactly the crime of apartheid is, how it's carried out, and various things like that. There's a whole range of other international laws as well, including the Rome Statute and various other things which also build on that. So what Tilly and Fork have done in their report is made their assessment as to whether Israel is an apartheid state or not, using this crime of apartheid law uh, as the basis for their assessment. And so that's why they now, uh, and according to using that assessment, yes, Israel meets the criteria of an apartheid state. What was interesting about their report, and I don't know if it's new, but maybe it's the first time it's been documented this way, is um, they actually identify what they call a strategic fragmentation of the Palestinian people as the basis for the uh, um, apartheid system, system, which is really interesting. Because um, uh, historically, um, there's been lots of allegations, even from within Israel, that Israel was either an apartheid state or becoming an apartheid state. For example, even David Ben-Gurion back in uh at one stage talked about that you know if Israel held on to the occupied territories and things like that. It would become an apartheid state, uh, and so often some uh, Israel supporters and even those who are opposed to Israel's occupation often will identify the apartheid nature of Israel as only pertaining to the occupied territories and beginning in 1967. What basically Tilly and Falk are doing is saying no, it exists. It exists before that. Uh, which which I would agree with, and and you know, in the readings that I've done on apartheid in Israel, and I even wrote an article a while back talking about how apartheid has been ingrained into the Zionist system uh, since uh, Israel's inception in 1948. So what they do in their report is they specifically documented as a, a thing called the strategic fragmentation of the Palestinian people as the basis and the root cause of the apartheid. So what they're saying there. Is that is that basically Israel um, has fragmented the Palestinian people into two three or four different groups and then and they use different methods on each sector to create this overall strategic, overarching apartheid system. So, for example, they talk about, you know, there's Palestinians in the occupied West Bank, which who are, and and, uh, East Jerusalem and Gaza and that, who are subject to Israeli military occupation, uh, military uh, rule and various things like that. Then there's, you know, obviously in East Jerusalem, uh, there were things like the permanent residency laws, which which impact on Palestinians uh, living in that part of the occupied territories. And then on top of that, you have then legal laws with inside uh, laws with inside the Israeli state, which discriminate, separate disenfranchised Palestinians inside the Israeli state. And then there's other laws which prevent Palestinians who are living in exile from coming back, claiming land, Claiming, you know, property, all of these things. So they're, they're actually saying that this is a very strategic fragmentation of the Palestinian people but when you look at the way the, legal, the Israeli legal system is imposed, whether it be military or civil, on all sectors, uh, whether it be in the occupied West Bank, East Jerusalem, uh, the Israeli state or in exile, they work together as an apartheid regime. I think they're correct in saying that but this is the first 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 time I have read about it being documented in such a precise way. Uh, And so this is actually quite an important, I think, contribution to the discussion of understanding how apartheid works uh, in Israel. So I think Tilly and Fork uh, have done a very worthwhile job of identifying that in a much more clearer way than has ever been uh, identified before.
1: And Falk has a lot of first-hand experience of this, hasn't he? Uh,
0: You know, he's been, as a rapporteur, obviously, he has reported on various things at different times. Um, uh, I don't think he's been a rapporteur for a few years now, but, you know, he has had experience of reporting on situations in Gaza and things like that. And, you know, Virginia Tilley also has written extensively previously on um, both South African apartheid, and on Israel and things like that. I, I actually met her many years ago in the West Bank, um, and and had this discussion. I had a discussion with her about the work that she'd done in South Africa and in, uh, in relation to South Africa and things like that. She them have a wealth of experience, and I mean, and what's interesting as Falk points out in an article that he did for the Middle East Eye after the the report was pulled by the UN was that you know he he says uh, in that 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 you know, this is first and foremost, a scholarly report more than anything else. So it's based on uh, academic research and scholarly insight, uh, which, I, which is a very good way of looking at it. Because, you know, one of the things that happened, obviously, as we know, is the report has been pulled uh, by the UN after there was outrage from the US and, um, uh, and Israel. Uh, and Falk points out, and he says, well, you know, this report was commissioned... It wasn't an ESCW, I think I've got the Ragnarum right, hopefully, report, but they commissioned it and, you know, it had actually been seen by other scholars. It had been, had other feedback and things like that. And I was actually reading this morning that um, actually in one of the uh, Israeli, I think it was Settler newspapers, I was reading this morning an article about the report. And, uh, oh, no, sorry, it wasn't an Israeli Settler. It was one of the, um, it was actually Fox News.
1: Oh dear. I'll get it right. Sorry, I
0: was reading on a Fox News report this morning that apparently the actual report had been up on the UN website since like November or December last year. So, which is interesting because one of the um, the reasons that was given by uh, Antonio Guterres was it, it was that supposedly it hadn't gone through the due process and various things like that. But according to this report that I read now you know how. On right-wing things, maybe it's better to take the word of Fox News, I don't know. Um, they were sort of saying that, you know, that actually had been up there for some time. I think it was the email, it was an email between Rana Califf, who was the the head of that um, that section uh, before she resigned to sort of um, Guterres and things like that. So I think that's an interesting thing, uh, you know, my gut feeling had always been and I have no proof of this but this is my you know just gut feeling was that the cry of oh it was just it didn't go through the right process that's why we've got to uh, you know pull it was more of just a, a political convenience than anything else.
1: Keeping with the report for a few more minutes it also urged governments to back the BDS campaign.
0: Yes, it did. Um, I think that's a really important part of it. It talked about widening the BDS and, and taking, you know, uh, out, out more broadly. And particularly, obviously, because crime of, the statute on the crime of apartheid, it, you know, actually, you know, it says that this is a crime against humanity, uh, uh, only second only only to genocide. That basically uh, international, uh, internationally, countries are supposed to take action to prevent it and stop it. Uh, and uh, one of these ways is, of course, that can, they can take action is through the BDS campaign uh, and boycotting Israel, imposing sanctions. So, I mean, at a level of the UN and things like that, it would go past just the mere boycotting of products and things like that, which is often done at a civil level. Is that? at a state level, at a nation level, the impositions of sanctions would be a very legitimate response in regard... To a nation found to be committing apartheid, whether it be Israel or anywhere else, so yes, yeah, so I think it's really important, and it gives a very a legitimacy uh, again to BDS, which is another reason why the US and Israel wouldn't have liked this report, uh, because of it, 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 you know, giving a very strong legitimacy to uh, to the BDS campaign, uh, because as as we know. You know the BDS campaign is often accused of being anti-Semitic and all of these sort of things, which of course is nothing of the sort. It is a campaign based in international, rooted in international law, and rooted in the concept of international solidarity with the with an oppressed people. And often people say, "Oh, well, why is it only targeting Israel?" Well, this BDS uh, campaign. Is a call by the Palestinian people. Of course, they're going to be asking for sanctions and boycotting of Israel because it's Israel that's oppressing them. They're not going to be calling, you know, for uh, people to be boycotting or placing sanctions on Germany or or Syria or France because that's not the country that is immediately oppressing them. Of course, there are lots of other boycotts and divestment campaigns around the world that exist, and they've been called by other uh, oppressed people and and groups. That you know, which um, should also be pointed, uh, supported as well. I mean, it's very important that I think we're consistent in supporting rights to human rights. And, and very much the leaders of the Palestinian boycott divestment campaign are, are very supportive of other campaigns around the world for human rights and against oppression. So, you know, of course, these accusations are just not legitimate in any way, shape or form.
1: Well, they might have got this report pulled down from internet and pulled down from the UN pages. But you can't put the journey back in the bottle, can you?
0: That's exactly right. I mean, I have to admit, when I first saw the report came out, I was like, oh, I wonder how long before it'll be pulled. That was my immediate reaction. And my immediate reaction was to download the report and to download copies of it, because I knew without a doubt that it, there would be such a huge foro around it and that it would get pulled but as you said, the genie is now out of the bottle, and what's important is that this is for the first time, even though it's been you know pulled back now. I, I didn't get a chance to check it, but I did read somewhere that perhaps the executive report is still had been up on the. Uh, the, the sectors were page for a while, but the rest of the report had been pulled, so people could still access it. Uh, at least the executive for a while. So this is important for, for the first time, you had uh, a UN agency using the term apartheid, which I think in a, in a report that they that had been written. That's really really important. Obviously, the report will be distributed in many ways. Like you know, just even when I was sort of looking on the internet yesterday to refresh my memory about everything that happened. You know, I found multiple copies of it, uh, the article that I mentioned that Richard Falk did for the Middle East Eye, it has a copy of it embedded in there. So this is something that will not go away now. It is there, it is a matter of time before this becomes more and more accepted. It's, you know, if we look back at the the history of just the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign, 10, 11 years, 12 years now, and many of the things that when it first used to talk about giving them uh, an anti-colonial analysis uh, once again it was a big shock and now many of those things that it used to uh, initially first started talking about and still talks about are now within the common mainstream They're now very much used quite regularly and you know even the turn off occupation in 2005 very rarely did you hear the term occupation being used in the way that um, it should be used, that this is a diligent military occupation. So that brought that back in and had a very important impact. And the same with apartheid, Um, you know, the BDS campaign and the discussion of apartheid by Palestinian activists has increased that um use of the word as a not just as a, a an attack but as a genuine analogy has been increased and you know over the years we've heard increasingly more and more israeli media people even um u.s uh, even john kerry at one stage talked about israel becoming a uh, you know apartheid state other uh, politicians within israel have, and political people in israel have started to use this term so it's not something that's going to go away. It's, it's going to become, I think, a stronger and stronger analogy, particularly when people understand exactly what it means and that it's not just, you know, we're trying to compare apples and oranges, South Africa and, and Israel, because, of course, Israel's apartheid is going to be different from apartheid in South Africa. But now what this report has given us is a very clear framework for how that apartheid plays out and how it's structured. And I think that's... Really important, and as you said, the genie's out now, and it's not going to be put back in a
1: bottle. It's interesting. I was reading that an Israeli comedian has um, implored Israelis to wake up and smell the apartheid.
0: Yes, um, I can't think of the, the guy's name Asef, now, but
1: Asaf Haral.
0: That's right. Yes, he uh, he he did a he did as you as you know he did a, a, a piece to camera on the last uh, show of the series that he was doing. Talking about apartheid, and I think he did a very good job in discussing it because you know he said and he and basically implying that there needed to be boycotts and and things like that. because he said, for many Israelis, they they don't see it this way because they they're not on the receiving end of it. Their lives are quite comfortable in many ways, and they're not the ones being oppressed and things like that. So quite easy to dismiss this idea or not even think about the oppression of Palestinians. This is very true. I mean, I know from my time of being in Palestine and Israel, you know, having uh, spent time in Israel and Palestine and worked with, Israeli uh, anti-occupation and pro-Palestinian activists. This is a discussion we've had many times about this issue about how Israeli society functions in this way. And even on, you know, just a, you know, an antidotal level, I mean, I remember the first time that I was in Israel and Palestine, you know, ages ago now, and at the time there was, uh, once again, a bombing of ha- happening in Gaza where at the time there was, you know, I think the bombing was for... Uh, something like 15 to 20 days and there'd been like 130, 40 Palestinians killed and I remember going into Tel Aviv in Yasser at one stage and visiting with some Israeli activists in Yasser and we were sitting on the beach and uh, you know beautiful sunset, lovely you know having a, a a a bottle of beer and some ice cream and things like that. And I was watching everybody walk past up on the, you know, as the sun was setting, walking past. And it was very pleasant and, you know, very calm and beautiful. And, you know, just sitting there, you could not imagine that, you know, 40 or so kilometres away or whatever, however far Gaza was away from uh, Tel Aviv, that there was this massive destructive bombing going on. You would never have known. It was a very surreal experience to to sit there and sort of know that, you know, that this was happening, but everything around you was functioning in a very, very normal way as if, you know, life went on and nothing was happening. And so you can see where he's, uh, this comedian, where he's coming from when he says these things.
1: Just talking about one Palestinian who knows what it's like to living in an apartheid state. He's been denied entry into Australia to take part in a conference.
0: Yes, Bassem to Tamimi at the moment, we're still waiting to hear whether he will be granted a visa. Hopefully people have heard of Bassem before. Bassem is an activist and Palestinian popular struggle leader from a tiny village of Nabi Salah in the occupied West Bank. It's got about 500 people in it. You know, like most Palestinian villages, they are struggling against the military occupation and they're obviously struggling against land theft by settlements and things like that. Nabisala in particular um, have been holding protests for the last seven or eight years against land theft uh, from their village of springs and other grazing land that has been annexed illegally by an Israeli colony named Halamesh, which is going across the road from the village. So they have been protesting against that, trying to get their land back and obviously against the, the, uh, uh, the occupation in general. And Basim Tamimi, along with a number of other activists in the village, have been jailed at various different times for their non violent Struggle against Israel's occupation. Bassem in particular, was um, jailed for more than a year, uh, and at the time, he was declared prisoner of conscience by Amnesty International because he was a non-violent struggle leader who was, you know, just struggling uh, in his own village. He was arrested for organising protests in his own village against the occupation. He was also he's also been declared a, a European Union uh, human rights defender as well. Bassem had been invited to come out and speak this year. At a number of um, by a number of Palestine groups, social support groups, and he was to do a speaking tour in Perth, Adelaide, Melbourne, and Sydney. And here in Melbourne, he, he will be specifically speaking at the Marxism conference over the uh, Easter weekend, uh, from the 13th to the 16th of April. We're still having hopes that he may be granted the visa, but at the moment, it ha- he hasn't been granted it. Uh, we're hoping that. That may change this week, but we're asking people to please... Sign a petition, mine later on giving the details of, of the change all position uh, petition, that we're asking people to sign that, to call on the Australian government to give him the visa because we think it's really important that you know Palestinians get to speak and talk about their struggle and, and what's going on. And one, one of the outrageous things that's happened is basically Bassam had filled in all the required documentation, given the Australian government, everything was required but he's now been asked by the Australian government to provide a document from the Israeli police. So basically, the Australian government is asking uh, an oppressed people to go to their oppressor to provide democ- documentation, say uh, they're okay to you know speak out against us, which is a ridiculous situation. We think that you know it's just outrageous that that should be happening. We're hoping that things may change, but we do want to get people to publicly support the petition and. Help, hopefully, put a little bit of public pressure on this Australian government to allow Bassam to uh, come and speak here because he's a great speaker. He's, uh, you know, he's a, a man of a lot of integrity. I think uh, people would really learn a lot from listening to the struggle of his village and and what they're doing.
1: And thanks to Kim Bullimore and that Change dot org person to support is Bassam. B-A-S-I-M-T-A-M-I-N-I So get onto it and register your support for his visa to come here to Australia. That's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4. Stay tuned for Dumbo Law, a little bit of music before they come on. Bye for now.